I want to encourage you to get your Bibles out to James chapter 4. If you do not have your Bible with you, for whatever reason that might be, there should be one in the back of that pew right in front of you. I also want to encourage you, would you take the outline, the sermon outline, out of the bulletin, whether you are going to fill it out or not, there is a lot of information in there, and I think you'll find it helpful as we go through this. We're in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and we've come a long way in James. And it might be good to just pause briefly and just review a little bit of the circumstances that these first century churches found themselves in. Help us understand why James writes this passage and why did James write this letter to these churches. Let me, let me hit a couple things for you briefly. Number one, the recipients of this letter were mainly poor Jews. Now, I want you to get that. The recip- those who received this letter, mainly they were poor and they were oppressed and they were poor and oppressed for several reasons. Here's a couple of them. You ready? Now listen, because this is going to make sense for you, the book of James, when you read it. They were taken advantage of by wealthy landowners. And they were hauled into court and their oppressors, believe it or not, were often Jews. To make matters worse, we know that in A.D. 46 to 48, a devastating famine struck Palestine. Palestine is the area of which most of the New Testament is, is about, or certainly the ministry of Jesus. Furthermore, these peasants, these poor Jews, had to pay taxes. You ready? Now listen. They had to pay taxes that totaled nearly 40% of their livelihood. They had the temple tax. They had the Roman tribute. They had special taxes. And they had this guy named Herod the king that nonstop built and expanded his entire life. An extremely aggressive building program, which Josephus, a Jewish historian, said bled the country dry. So you've got all of these hardships on these Jewish poor people, and James writes a letter to them. What else is happening? Number two. James was concerned that while the church was in the world, now listen, while the church was in the world, its proper position... The world was getting into the church. There's a big difference. So while the church was getting into the world, Jesus said, I have come and to send them. Father, I send them out into the world. We're supposed to be sent out into the world. That's where the church is supposed to go. But the the world was finding its way into the church. You have favoritism of those who are rich. You've got callous indifference. Uh, to those who are poor, you've got uncontrolled and critical speech. You've got judgmentalism. You've got worldly wisdom. There's fighting and there's arrogance. Sounds a lot like today. James warns them against friendship with the world and he encourages a pure and undefiled religion as 
part of what keeps oneself unstained from the world. So here he is. Remember, James has written this five chapter book and he got to get this. And he has 54 Greek imperatives. Every time you hear about a Greek imperative, all I want you to think in your mind is either a whiplash to get you moving or a military military order to get you moving. Greek imperatives were designed to get you moving. So James is about a movement book to become a community filled with life-transforming power. Now listen, who doesn't want to be part of a church where you are engaging your community all around you and you are transforming lives? Do you want to be part of that? James wants us to be part of that. But there's a lot of problems. Four things that you need to remember about this passage. Number one. All I'm doing is introing because without an introduction to this passage, you're not going to make it make sense. Number one, James is aiming these strong words, chapter five, one through six, at his, listen, at his worldly, unbelieving countrymen. Do you hear what I just said? James has written these verses for those who were in the churches yet did not believe in Christ and they were wealthy. He writes a seething, scathing warning to the ungodly rich who were wealthy farmers. And you need to know this. They were wealthy farmers that owned large tracts of land and they were squeezing everyone and everything for profit. Their only concern was the bottom line money. Number two, James intends for this to strengthen the Christian Jews in the church. Now, when I went, when Denise and I were expecting our first child, I did what every godly husband is supposed to do. I went with her to Lama's classes, <laughs> thinking it's for Denise. I'm supporting her, but this is for my wife. I'll do my time. I'll soon be free. So we go to these Lama's classes, and it was wonderful. That was sarcasm. We had our baby, Matthew, and I realized that the Lama's classes were pretty much more about me than they were to Denise. Because I think without the Lama's class, I would have fainted. (laughs) You might be sitting here reading this passage today. Now listen to this, please. You may think, okay, he's writing to wealthy, non-believing Jews. I'm pretty much not any of them. So it doesn't apply to me. Friends, I want to encourage you. This does apply to us. There's a reason that James wrote to the wealthy, non-believing Jews as he wrote to the churches. There's something that believers need to hear in this passage. And I'm going to encourage you and challenge you to ferret this out with me. John Calvin says about this. James has a regard for the faithful, listen, that they, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune. And also, knowing that God would be the avengers of wrongs that they suffer, that they might, with a calm mind, bear through them. See, this is for the church. But James is writing to the non-believing wealthy Jews. Number three, what do you need to know to, to let this passage make sense? James knows that some of these wealthy farmers were becoming prominent in these scattered churches. Now, listen, this is what's happening. 
You've got wealthy farmers who were not believers, who were sitting week after week, service after service, worship after worship, and they were gaining prominence. They were becoming leaders in the church. How sick is that, that wealthy, non-believing men would become the leaders of God's church? Don't you remember that when a wealthy person would come into their church service, James talks about this, that if Josh, if you were an usher, you would go get that wealthy man and you would bring them down to the closest to the speaker. Those were the coveted seats in in the worship service. And if your father, who didn't have any money, came in and he was poor, you would take him and you'd say, Dad, sit over there by my stool on the floor. You'd probably like to say that, wouldn't you? That's a bad example. But you would usher the poor people over to the stools, over to the floor in the back, and all the wealthy people, whether they were believers or not, would get the prominent positions. This was favoritism all through the church. But there's a fourth reason that James writes. There's another thing that's happening, and you need to know it. If it is not money, now listen, it is not money and wealth that James condemns, but what it can do to us and what we will do with it. Don't you remember that Job? Don't you remember Abraham? Don't you remember David? Don't you remember Lydia? All of these are examples of godly men and women who had enormous wealth. James's focus is on those who gain wealth. Listen, in an ungodly manner, they center their lives on it. And they fail to use it for the benefit of others. This is why James writes, James chapter 5, 1 through 6, because people who were wealthy, who centered their lives on their money, who didn't use it for the needy and were gaining it in unjust means, were becoming prominent in the church. So he writes a corrective to the churches. This is going to be fun. That was just the intro. Let me tell you one thing. And let me use an illustration. Why did James write this? A few weeks ago, Denise calls me up from downstairs. She says, Tim, would you come up here? The toilet is plugged. Now, our little two-year-old thinks making snowballs out of toilet paper and throwing them in the toilet is fun. But it has a catastrophic effect on our plumbing. So she calls me up, and I man the plumber. I use that word purposely. And I manually plunge for 15, 20 minutes to no avail. So I said, all right. I get on Home Depot's internet site. I said, what's going to take care of this problem? And I see this device that I've never heard of before. It's a CO2 charged plumber. (laughs) Plunger. I said, Denise, run out and get that for me, will you? And I'll take care of this thing. So she goes to Home Depot and buys this thing, comes back. Man, this is a man's dream. It's got cartridges. All you do is wail on the handle and it explodes. Who cares that what's in the toilet is everywhere on me and on the floor? It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm a man toy. Four explosions. And it was flushing like the day it was born. Now listen. Why am I telling you that disgusting story? What pastor tells you these stories? You are privileged. Now, let me tell you why I'm telling you this story. (laughs) Friends, listen. Seriously. James 5, 1 through 6, 
is a CO2 charge redemptive plunger for the hardened of heart. Now, I want you to see that because when we go through this, you're going to say, my goodness, he's tough. My goodness, this is harsh. You know what James is doing? He's trying to unplug hearts that were rooted in this world. Let's look at it. James has two things to say to the ungodly, wealthy churchgoer. Number one, your church's friends are worthless. Now, listen, you remember, you're in Lamaze class. You're going to need to know this. This isn't for the person sitting next to you. This is for us. Your churches are worthless. Look at verse one. Now, listen, you rich people weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. See, it's not the redeemed who have a misery coming upon them. How do you know that James is now talking to unbelievers? Because it's the unbeliever that have a future date with misery. He says to the rich unbelievers, if you only had the eyes to see, you would see what is coming your way. Now think about this. He says, while you are in comfort now, he infers, certain misery lies before you. If you just would see it, you would do what? Look what he says in verse 1. You would weep and wail. You know what? If you were a Jew... And you heard this letter being read. You remember, it was being read out loud in the worship service. And so they were hearers of God's word. And James wanted them to be hearers and doers. Here's what they would have heard. How vivid this word wail is. Because the word wail means more than just to sob loudly. Listen, it means to shriek. It means to scream in frantic terror. That's the power of this word. It means to scream in frantic terror. It's a word seen in the Old Testament by the prophets as a connected sin to God's judgment. Here's an example. Isaiah 13, wail, there it is, same word, for the day of the Lord is near. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. See, it is those who have pursued. Now listen, it's those who have pursued and found this world's riches to be satisfactory, who will weep and wail. Why? Because there's a misery coming, James says, and their possessions and their clothes and their money will avail them nothing. Look what he says in verse 2 through 3a. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Now listen, this is really interesting. There's three main sources of wealth. In the ancient days, first one, corn and grain. And they will rot, James says. The second one, garments, which will wear out and be eaten by moths. And the third one, precious metals and jewels, which will corrode and tarnish. You see, clothing, friends, was a sought-after treasure in the Middle East. Robes, mantles, cloaks. Don't you remember that Joseph... When he was reunited with his brothers, he gave them beautiful garments, Genesis 45. And it was clothing that Samson promised anyone who could solve the riddle that he created in Judges 14. They were garments that Naaman, that wealthy uh, leper, brought with him to whoever could, to give to whoever could heal him of his leprosy. And it was any man's clothing that Paul claimed to have never coveted. Clothing was a major commodity. 
as well as grain and corn and precious metals and jewels. Everything, James says, that the world produces, and he vividly points this out, it's utterly worthless in the perspective of eternity. In fact, their pursuit of these things, look what he says, verse 3b, whoever betray, it betrays a sickness that resides in the heart. Here's what it says, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Friends, listen, when you when you know somebody that is pursuing with all of what they have for what this world promises them, it's a cancer that depraves the soul. It, it eats away at them. I had a friend in college who month after month had his latest scheme to make a million dollars, always trying to recruit me into these schemes. And almost all of them have some sort of pyramid structure to them. If you get enough people and you get to the top, you've got a broad base of earning underneath you. The man was never happy because he never made his millions. It's a cancer that eats your flesh like fire. But there's another point here. Look what James says in verse 3, the second part. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Let me tell you the second point. James says your selfishness is seen and it's noted. First he said your riches are worthless. Now he's pointing out that your selfishness is seen and noted. Let me tell you this story, true story. Bertha Adams died alone in Florida in 1976. Now listen to this. The coroner reported that she died of malnutrition having wasted away to 51 pounds. State authorities investigated her home and related it to be a, quote, pig pen, the biggest mess you can imagine, unquote. Bertha had begged food from neighbors. She had gotten clothing from Salvation Army. She was a pitiful and forgotten widow. But here's the rest of the story, friends. Bertha was far from penniless. Amid the jumble of her belongings, Two keys were found to two safe deposit boxes at two different banks. One box contained stock certificates, bonds, financial securities, and cash, which alone, the cash amounted to $200,000. And in the other box was $600,000 of cash. Altogether, Bertha Adams, the moment she died at 51 pounds, hoarded over a million dollars. Her wealth did her no good, nor any needy person. James says the first part, why your selfishness is seen, why it's noted, because A, they hoarded their wealth. Friends, listen, the way that we handle our monies, you know, I don't know why pastors don't talk about money. How many of you have been in a church where pastors don't like to talk about money? You've been in a few. Some of you have. You know, I think it's a beautiful topic to talk about because the way that we handle money tells us a lot about the way we worship God. Did you know that any, anyone here can tell you where your passions are in God's kingdom or this kingdom by looking at two things, your calendar and your checkbook? It's all you need. But when we hoard money, James says, we're selfish. God sees it and he notes it. You know, the word hoarded means to store up. It's used in Romans 2 in this way. Uh, the ungodly, Paul says, were storing up wrath against themselves for the day of God's wrath. 
when his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will give to each person according to what he has done. So what were these wealthy, unbelieving people in the church doing? They were hoarding their money. They were storing it up. But they were doing another thing too. Look at your outline at letter B. They gained wealth through injustice. Would you look at verse 4 with me? Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. See, as these wealthy landowners took these poor peasant farmers to court, they would gain their land through foreclosures. It's not unlike today. James 2.6 told us, remember, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Let me explain what was happening for you so that you understand this. The farmers, then, once their land was stolen by these wealthy farmers and businessmen, once their land was stolen, the farmers then would work the land that formerly belonged to them for their new landowners. Now get this, ready? This is going to make James make sense. At the end of each day, these day laborers would receive their wage. So if you were a day laborer in first century Palestine, John, and you did your day's work, then the landowner at the end of that day would give you your money, which would buy your family tomorrow's food. Now get the situation. They were always on the verge of starvation because today's wages bring tomorrow's food. This is why God commanded estate owners to pay their workers daily. Look at Deuteronomy up on the screen if you would. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy. Pay him the wages each day before sunset because he is poor and he's counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. Another way that the, they exploited the poor, this is who James is writing to, the rich, unwealthy people in the churches. Who Did I say unwealthy? The rich, unbelieving people. At least I catch my idiot, idiot mistake. Another way they exploited them was through loaning money at high interest rates. So many of them weren't able to repay their debts. And once you couldn't pay your debt back, you were taken to court. But listen, once I'm taken to court... How can, I, how can I earn a wage? And if I can't earn a wage, who's going to feed my family? Where is the church? This is what James is saying. Church, rise up. There's people all around you who are needy and poor. Some as a victim of injustice. And the church has got to act on their behalf. You see, listen, if I go to prison... In first century Palestine, the only way I'm going to eat in prison is if my family brings me food. You don't get three meals in prison in first century. And if my family has no money to buy food for me and bring it to me, then I'm going to, I'm going to die. Now you're getting what James is, why he's so stern, why he's so harsh in this passage. God has consistently spoken harshly of those who spread injustice. Listen to these verses. Amos 5.11 You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. 
Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their vine. And Amos 8, 7 says, I will never forget anything they have done. This is God speaking about those who live without justice. You see, God will not forget because look at verse 4 again. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Now listen, it gets worse. The landowners were doing all of this. They were sending out workers who used to own these fields. They're sending out workers in the midst of harvest time. Friends, do you know what that means? In the midst of harvest time means their barns were filling. And full barns mean a lot of money. And so in the midst of harvest time, the day workers were coming back and the owners of these land tracts were saying, I don't have your money today, but I'll have it tomorrow. And like the blood of righteous Abel, the cries of the downtrodden rise to the Lord. Friends, listen, this is frightening. The Greek is not what the NIV has translated, the Lord Almighty, verse 4, but it's the Lord of hosts, which conjures the image of God who marshals His forces to go to war against the wealthy to defend His oppressed poor. Pretty interesting passage. Your selfishness is seen and noted. They hoarded their, their wealth and they gained wealth through injustice. But it's not done yet. Look at letter C. They spent with self-indulgence. Look at verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Not only had these wealthy imposters in the churches hoarded their money, not only did they rob the needy to get it, They spent it in their own pleasures. Look what he says. They lived in luxury. That phrase means this. They had a soft, pampered life. That word luxury means soft. They lived a soft, pampered life that led to immorality. But even the next phrase is worse. Self-indulgence. Listen to this. Ready? Everybody look up here. Self-indulgence in the Greek means to plunge headlong like you would dive into a pool for your own pursuit of pleasure. You see, these wealthy unbelievers, they're gonna, they're gonna enjoy their pampered life for a time. They're gonna have the best food, they're gonna have the best care, they're gonna have the best possessions, but it will lead toward their destruction. Look at James, he says, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Friends, listen, the end of a fattened cow is a slaughterhouse. The end of these selfish, wealthy men and women in these churches was grief and death and the destruction of their own souls in the day of judgment. Don't you see that CO2-powered plunger as James is trying to unclog their hearts and open their minds, their ears, and their eyes to God's grace? Finally, They hoarded their wealth. They gained wealth through injustice. They spent with self-indulgence. Finally, these wealthy unbelievers that were scattered through these churches, they acquired wealth without principle. You remember that the wicked, wealthy landowner was, was, were using the courts to, to uh, judiciously murder the poor. Because if I could go to, if I go to prison, 
I can't earn a wage for my family. If I can't earn a wage for my family, they can't bring food to me. I'm going to starve and they're going to starve. Friends, this is not metaphorical murder. This was literal. And even though the poor man did not oppose or fight back, James says he murdered innocent men. They were still condemned. And real death was a result. Friends, do you, like me, get the idea that God's a little angry as he's inspired James to write to this group of people who are wealthy non-believers in the church gaining prominence? Let me ask you four questions as we close. Would you answer them honestly? Remember I told you that uh, Lama's training wasn't just for Denise, it was for me as well. This is for the Christians as well. Let me ask you four questions. Do you live, really, just interact with this. Just ask yourself these questions. Do you live in submission to God in the area of your money? Are you an owner or a steward? Those are miles apart. Does God really own your money? And your possessions. I remember uh, in a summer internship, the, there was a wealthy woman who had asked a man to come over who installs glass, and her sliding door on her patio had broken. And he gave her a quote of three hundred fifty dollars, and she sat there in agony because she knew how many sets of shoes for children in Haiti three hundred fifty dollars could buy. This is a wealthy woman, but she lived with an eternal mindset. Let me ask you another question. Do you live with strong sensitivity to others' needs, family, friends, or even strangers? And, and better yet, number three, does that sensitivity move you often toward action with your finances? When you see somebody in need, does it move you to help relieve that suffering? And friends, let me ask you one final question. Do you steward your monies with a view toward eternity? God has given us all what we possess. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Whatever you and I have, it's from Him, and we steward it for His purposes. Amen? How hard is that? Very hard. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for James. Lord, he wrote unapologetically, Lord, to defend the church and to strengthen the church towards maturity. And Lord, he saw many in the churches who were wealthy and who were robbing and stealing and through injustice acquiring other people's properties and then not paying them even the wages that were due. And he saw them taking this money which was overflowing in harvest time and using it for their own pleasure, not caring that some were even losing their lives. And God, James had seen that some of these very men were gaining positions of leadership in your church. Lord, I pray for my friends here this morning. I pray for all of us. 
Lord, that we would see what we have as being from you to manage and to use for other people. Lord, to use with wisdom, to use, Lord, as an expression of our faith that produces righteous deeds. Lord, I pray that we would not live self-indulgent lives diving headlong into pleasure. Lord, that we would not be fattening ourselves for some day of slaughter, that we would not be shrieking in torment when we appear before you, but Lord, that we would be believers that live on this plane of existence for another world. Lord, we need your help with that. Because this world wants to make its way into the church at every turn and into our hearts. So we pray for help. And in Jesus' name, amen.